You're listening to All Art is Quite Useless, where a group of mates chat about art. We talk about music, literature, films, paintings, and everything in between. The podcast is also brought to you by Cavity Magazine, a magazine dedicated to bringing you the latest developments from the front lines of online writing. Find us on Twitter, at Cavity Magazine, and submit today. Alternatively, you can get in touch by emailing at submissionscavmag at gmail.com. Submissionscavmag at gmail.com. All is quite useless this is episode six uh this week we are taking a look at daniel close comic series like a velvet glove cast an iron and we'll be doing a spoiler discussion on that there is a link in the description to this podcast as to where you can read that online for free but i also recommend picking up a copy of the graphic novel because the artwork is excellent it's nice to have a physical copy of such nice things we'll be talking all things tina Laura and various other fish monsters and conspiracies in this episode. So, well, like I said, if you don't want to be spoiled, do go ahead and read it. I've replaced the usual intro music this week with Chan Pechan Ho, which is the song from the opening credits of Ghost World. We had a little discussion about that this week too. So, if you want to go ahead and watch that to have a bit more frames of reference for our conversation, do go ahead. At about 28 minutes into this podcast, Jack starts playing with a coin in his microphone and it's a very bloody irritating noise and I couldn't quite work out a good way with which to edit it because it was making quite a good point at the time. So I'm afraid the audience will just have to grin and bear it. So sorry again and uh, he has been reprimanded and he shall never ever do it again. But now sit back and enjoy it. Jan for Jan जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो दिल को चुराने वालों आंख न चुराओ नाम तो बताओ जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो जान पहचान हो जीना आसान हो दिल को चुराने वालों आंख न चुराओ नाम तो बताओ I can see the moment that you realized in your eyes, yeah. Olivia. You're like, <laughs> I, I'm number three. There was a film called I'm Number Four, wasn't there? Oh, I've, seen I've not literally thought about that <laughs> film for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a weird rush of memories coming I back about this movie I don't know, that I had not thought about. Unfortunately, we're not here to discuss I Am Number 4. We're here to discuss instead uh, Daniel Close's eight-part saga, if you will, uh, like a velvet glove cast in iron. I set this last week for our reading. I read it 
nearly two years ago. As I said in that last pod, I got given it as a gift from a dear friend, Liam, for my 22nd birthday. And uh, he knows my taste to a T, that man. And I really struggled to think of what we're going to look at next, considering we've done quite a good range of stuff. And I wanted to pick something unlike anything else we'd done. And I thought, what better place to go than the crazy world of Daniel Clow's mind? Um, I'm so intrigued as to what you all thought. <laughs> it's so, it's so nuts. Uh, yeah, I'll open it up, Jamie. Open this shit up. In a slightly anticlimactic fashion, I don't really know what to make of this. It's, it, you're right, it is nuts. <laughs> um, and I could tell that like a lot of it, particularly um, where it's incoherent and extremely strange at times. I know that that's clearly done in a purposeful and artful way, but in terms of unpacking it, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of it from this conversation, really, because the stuff that I could actually <laughs> glean from the writing was so um, abstract that I feel like, yeah, this conversation is going to be most of my... Um, my discovery. Jack, you look like you look like you have something to say, do you? Yes, I <laughs> certainly do. Um I really enjoyed it. It was lovely. And a in a in a horrible way. <laughs> um yes, it was it was a very enjoyable read for me. Um but I I enjoy the uh disgusting, dirty side of the human psyche uh portrayed on uh any 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 form of art um i i also really enjoy uh non-linear well it's not really exactly non-linear it kind of is i don't know but i enjoy the 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 non-traditional uh ways of telling a story um and uh quite like I, i like media that portrays um dreamlike logic uh, or nightmare-like logic, which is more apt for this discussion. Um, yeah, uh, I, I really, uh, I, I, I relished the read. Um, I loved the art style. Uh, the art style was so creepy um, and so almost like uh, like infantile in how like rudimentary a lot of the a lot of the characters looked. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quite a lot of exaggerated features and. You know, it's not meant to be. Uh, it's not like a, a, something that Alan Moore would do. Like, like think about Watchmen, how sort of everyone looks like they could be real in uh in in that in that form. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I I'm looking forward to the discussion uh, unpacking more. I have a few questions uh, for Louis relating to <laughs> what actually happens in it because. Um, you you're more experienced with it than than I am. So, <laughs> yeah, so this is my yeah, second time. So, so my my first impression is probably going to be a bit mired by. Uh, I only read it today, so it's going to be. It, I've not really had a massive amount of time to gestate it, but it might work to the advantage of the discussion. Might be a bit more more fresh in my mind than than you you guys. So yeah, no, I uh, yeah, excited to talk about it. Really enjoyed it. Cool, live. Um, what do you think? I think after I finished it and I let it sit for a bit and I sort of did my research, I got so much more out of the experience than I actually did reading it because 
it's so bizarre and mental but i was constantly trying to work out what was going on and i hate when you're reading something and you always feel like you're missing something and you feel like there's some private joke you're not in on mm-hmm. um but i think that is the point of it and that's what sort of makes it so good you're not meant to you're not meant to try and work out what's going on it it reminded me a lot of pulp fiction in a way it's just a series of scenes and impressions and weird situations and it's best enjoyed just taking it as it is and each each scene in its own right um so yeah when i was reading it i was it was difficult it was a bit of a slog because it's just the weird nature of it but afterwards i was like yeah it was doing some really interesting things there which i think will be good to discuss later down the line mm-hmm. um i certainly realized I, I didn't really give much of a synopsis. I don't know how much of a synopsis that you can give to something like this. The loose setup of this comic book is that uh, our hero, Clay Loudermilk, goes to see a CD BDSM film in a cinema, and he sees in this his ex-wife stars as the main dominatrix, thus brings the quest to find his ex-wife. And the comic just kind of forgets that that's the plot every minute yeah. or so. And it just sets up new avenues. He bumps into someone else. They go here. They do this. Mm. I've... Then he falls asleep. Then he wakes up with new people around him. Uh, and then that happens pretty much till the very end. I've got to admit, on my, on my first read, I didn't even realise, or it wasn't until afterwards, that I realised that that was his ex-wife that he saw. No, no me that's, neither. Kinda... <laughs> that's news yeah, to I me right now. Yeah. <laughs> I read about yeah. it and I was like, oh, that's yeah. what was going on. <laughs> I kind of just assumed he was some way like enamored with this person and wanted to meet them in real life. Yeah, yeah that's I what I thought. I didn't clock for me at all. Well, I think that's one of the things that is left pretty ambiguous about it is because so many of the drawings of the women in this that you interact with are so similar yeah. to this actress. Yeah. Um, I noticed that. The, the, the mother of Tina <laughs> Ooh, is one of we'll them. Get to Don't. Tina. <laughs> Don't mention oh. Tina. <laughs> I, will, I will see um, her forever in my nightmares. <laughs> The, the the little girl who comes up with the plot to the the film that is Clay Loudermilk's life is even somewhat alike yeah. to uh, to the ex wife. Um, the like a velvet glove cast in iron. It was originally published in Eight Ball magazine, one of Daniel Clay's own sort of zines that he did. And Liv, you've read Ghost World, haven't you? Yeah, so I think I lent you my copy of that at some point. Yeah. And this is so different from Ghost World. I don't know how much you remember of that. Yeah, I don't remember loads of it, but I remember it. There's a clear narrative in Ghost World, and it's sort of more. It's more of a classic um, comic, I guess. Maybe not in terms of yeah. uh, theme, but accessible, in terms of like. It? Yeah, it's just like Definitely. a linear storyline. It's about two girls in the summer between high school and college. That's all yeah. it's about, really. I've, and just them sort of bumbling I've seen about. the film of Ghost World, and it's fantastic. It's funny you say that. I watched it the other night in preparation for really? this discussion. Did you enjoy it? Um, so it we'll get, we'll to, get it. to that. It's been, it's been a while since I've watched it. Because uh, I do have some things that I, that I did find quite interesting about that film um, that tie into my thoughts on this. But it's interesting that you're all... You, the sensor seems to be just sort of looking towards me for the answers, and I'll be honest, I don't have many more than you guys <laughs> probably well, do. I... Which is kind of a meta thing on this story because 
the whole there's that whole plot about uh the value ape mascot mr jones face that mr jones that appears throughout history and there's a really great moment in that story where it kind of becomes clear that all the enthusiasts of this underground mr jones society We'll kind of look to each other for more answers, but none of them have any more answers yeah. for each other, really. <laughs> and that's kind of how we're all acting right now about the <laughs> about the actual comic. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's so, like you said, Jack. It's so dreamlike. I think Daniel Close has even said as much that he it's inspired by daydreams that he's had in the way mm. that he'll get distracted and move from thing to thing in his mind. In a lot of sense, it's probably quite hard to talk about, but I think the moment, which is probably what's quite difficult about the first read of it, anyone does, but I think once you're ready to abandon any semblance of proper plot, I think it's a really fun ride. Yeah, I think, I was just going to say, I think that was my issue for when I was reading it. I was so, you know, you you sort of start reading something, you're trying to work out what's going on naturally, as you would anything you consume art-wise. Um, and I just sort of ha- held on to that throughout the entire duration of the comic. And I wish I could just, <laughs> but I think it'll be better on rereading. I think it's something you need to read twice. That's probably why you may have a bit more, you know. I definitely got some very different thoughts on it this time round. Mm. I, I, I think I enjoyed it more the second time for sure. Mm. Yeah. Because I knew that, I knew, I knew that you're not really supposed to be here for the plot. You're supposed to be here for the atmosphere of it all, I suppose. And there is something so fun about having absolutely no idea where a story is taking you. Yeah. Uh, one of my complaints last time out about blue of the warmest blue is blue of the warmest color. Blue is the warmest color. Uh, is that I think I said that I knew what was about to happen in the film from about an hour off. Like I, I knew what was coming on the horizon. I had no idea what was going to happen from panel to panel or something like this. It's two difficult things to really contrast, but I, I do like the excitement of anything being on the on the cards in this kind of story. And he's not afraid to really let his creativity take you to wherever it is he wants to point a light in that direction for a bit i think it derives some great humor from those kind of moments as well there was quite a few bits <laughs> just the for the pure absurdity and randomness of them that i found very funny one of them yeah. being we talk about the mr jones thing the mr jones being one of hitler's birthmarks <laughs> <laughs> that really got yeah. me um, I forgot that bit in it i forgot yeah. that there's one panel it's- where somebody offhandedly says Oh, Hitler's living up in Brazil somewhere. You just see one panel of Hitler getting a haircut. The way, the way that the panel zooms into it as well is so funny. I, I got a lot of joy out of that one little bit. Uh, did you have a favourite plot or favourite part of it? I liked the um, the dog that you had to shave the back of to get the map. Oh, Laura. <laughs> I yeah. love Laura. Laura was my favourite. That was another one that was... Survived for 60 years on one syringe of water every day. <laughs> no orifices. And that was something yeah. as well that, like, it, throughout the, the whole of the graphic novel, there were, like, little things that you'd think were just random aside jokes, but would then come up later. It's like when the dog first showed up, I was like, oh, okay, that's just one of those, like, random little bits. They're probably going to discard it, and it's not going to have much impact on. But then eventually it comes back around, and um, it becomes this really integral part for... Uh... <laughs> 
the main character. I forgot his name, sorry. Clay, Clay Loudermilk. Clay, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear Clay in my mind, Clay. I hear it in what I imagine Tina's voice to be. Clay, you're <laughs> back. <laughs> that's another thing I loved about um Tina was like the moments when he'd like go into her house and she'd suddenly turn into like a, a 50s American housewife like desperately trying to entertain <laughs> the guests and like yeah. erratically nervous uh, her infatuation yeah yeah um yeah I, I thought the, the first first part of the of the graphic novel that I clocked onto it wasn't going to be a normal read was um it's kind of the it's <laughs> it's after he uh calls his mate to borrow his car and um oh yeah he, go, he goes to his house and he's he's had his eyes surgically removed because <laughs> they're infected and he's got some like asian uh like crustaceans uh, crustaceans in his eye sockets <laughs> that are meant to clean out the bacteria and that just like made me how i was like what it's such it, a vivid drawing as it's, well it's yeah it, it, re- it really <clears throat> re- it reminded me quite a lot in quite a few places of the mighty boosh and in those absurd uh gags that they have that they never address the logic of um but there there's so many of them and you can almost see a, a weird sort of logic to it um, like with that gag in particular, I kind of, I imagined it was poking fun at all the like uh, uh, alternative medicine remedies that you hear that you hear about and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like acupuncture and stuff like that. Like I don't know if that works or not, but it's a lot of that stuff can seem quite absurd, especially to like Western conventional medicine. And um, so that just seemed like that kind of thing taken to the nth degree uh and i think there's quite a lot of stuff um in i think it's it's a really it's a deeply satirical uh work like um it reminded me a lot of uh under the silver lake like yeah I, that's re- the only film or other piece of media i can think of that is like this yeah jamie and liv have you seen under the silver lake i have not I- Oh, it's, it's the follow-up film from the guy that did It Follows. And just, I, mean, it, I, I was thinking, because as I was reading it this time, I was thinking, how would I, if I had to make a film or TV series of this, how would you go about it? It seems the kind of impossible. Mm. So, which is why I watched Ghost World, because I wanted to see somebody trying to adapt one of his stories into a film. Yeah. And Under the Silver Lake is probably the closest thing to a comic like this being in a film in the sense that the plot of that is really loosely set up but so many different things and characters are framed on the most threadbare plot of Andrew Garfield becoming obsessed with his neighbour it's more or less a carbon copy story really Yeah, like Clay is obsessed with uh, the woman in this there's no way that um David, I think it's David Robert Mitchell who directed Under the Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. He, there's no way he hasn't read this. I don't. I don't think. Yeah. Because I, 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 mean, I imagine he's obviously he's obviously a student of David Lynch as well. Um, but that like this is almost 
um, Lynchian in the in the in the graphic novel form, which I haven't ever seen done before, really, because we're so used to seeing. Um, we're so used to. I mean, you know, if you if you like that kind of stuff, you are quite used to seeing films with unconventional logic and dreamlike logic, but. Um, I've never seen them in the written or the graphic novel form, so yeah, it was it was really interesting to see all these like different strands of like uh, artistic DNA fall off fall off it as I was reading it. Um, I also I don't know if it's like just pure coincidence or, or anything, but I was getting heavy Twin Peaks vibes. Um, maybe that's just because uh, they're both quite uh, unconventional and, and dreamlike and strange and about. Uh, small towns in america in middle america but um mm-hmm. uh i i think there's some deeper stuff going on like philosophically with with both with both of them characters this time around with the two policemen that pick him up quite early on in the story who <laughs> just talk in no, police codes just completely sick. <laughs> yeah. that really made me laugh that's funny that, yeah. I like that moment they were horrible uh, <laughs> our, pro- our, our kind of implied they're lovers yeah and <laughs> and they go around marking people out in the like the deserts <laughs> Yeah, it's really weird. It's very strange. But there's loads of great, like, brutality, police brutality stuff brought up in that. I thought, there's, yeah, th- there was there was a heavy sense of anti-authoritarianism in it. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, it completely issues like any conventional narrative. So there's, it's uh, it's designed to be anti-authoritarian. But then you have all the stuff with like the gender wars and the sex cult. And yeah. um, uh, eventually, I'm assuming you've read it if you're listening to if you're listening to this. But um, at the like near the end, there's a scene where Bill Clinton gets taken hostage in the White House. And uh, the fact that there's a there's um, a rendering of Bill Clinton in this as well, I find yeah, very, very funny. Looks hilarious. It's not too late. It's not too late, guys. <laughs> yeah, that you, was great. You can get off lightly if you let me go now. Yeah. So it was. It was. Uh, there's lots of lots of sort of anarchistic sentiments to it yeah um, but then i think it does a good job of, of portraying um a chaotic world it's... without without order as well and like uh lampooning that too sorry what were you gonna say i was just agreeing with you like it's there's so many subversive elements to it which i think obviously when you first reading it, it was trying to grapple so much with the weirdness that it seems so normal but like this main character clay he's so such a vulnerable character as this like male protagonist he's literally just manipulated and exploited by all these forces around him and particularly particularly authoritarian uh forces but also like just like random conspiracists or like weird cults and um (laughs) another Mm -hmm. element of that is tina who i think we're gonna have to obviously have a 
a big old discussion about <laughs> Tina. She's such, uh, a, <laughs> she's such she's an interesting She's kind of the character. linchpin of the entire story. <laughs> she kind of is. She's the most likable character. She is. She's the most human and real relatable character in the whole thing, but she's obviously this freaky <laughs> tuna. Monster. Potato monster. child. Fish monster. Yeah. Well, did, did you pick up that thing that she maybe is or maybe isn't a direct descendant of Mr. Jones. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Because the diver guy talks about uh, Billings, his name is. Uh, he talks about when he was, uh, and he used to be an insurance diver, he'd been in the lake. And he, he's like, oh, I've seen shit, man. Like, that's where God is. And he keeps telling that <laughs> weird Asian kid who's got, like, boss eyes. He's, he's just constantly drinking eating. packets of ketchup. <laughs> I hated him. <laughs> just, I hated just hearing, that just hearing about it's making me laugh. He was the most irritating character, and he, I couldn't even hear hear the disgusting noises he was making. He just irritated <laughs> one me. Bit, one of my favorite bits is when he discovers Billings crying at the grave of his dog Laura, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Can't." It's like I'm having a solo party here. Like, leave me alone. He's like, can I watch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, he said he says to the kid like, "That's where God comes from." And then within a few pounds, you see the Mr. Jones figure turn into the beautiful man that uh, impregnated Tina's mother. Yeah. Mm. So she may be yeah, a I, young Jones. At first, um, because I, I, you know, it's the kind of thing that you try and work out in your head as you're reading it. Like you're trying to guess where it's going to take you next. Um, I thought that uh, Billings looked quite similar to the portrait of the man so i thought that it was going to be a case of billings saw mr jones in uh, tina's mum and mr and tina's mum saw mr jones in billings and had gotten her pregnant and then like it was going to be a more sort of um rational explanation for these irrational things like it was almost all a hallucination but then it kind of uh i can't remember exactly what happens later but i do remember that that is undercut somewhat because um um I, well as i say <laughs> i can't remember exactly what point it was but yeah I, I i think that uh tina is the descendant of what uh billings calls mr jones yeah I, not not sure what to make of who mr jones is exactly <laughs> um Maybe nothing. Yeah, like that, maybe the, nothing. The guy who the guy who was supposed to be the head of the Mister Jones is Mister One Thousand. Yeah. Mister One Thousand says that like it's nothing. Yeah. Like you've got, it's nice that you found me, but it's nothing. Like there's nothing at the end of this. Yeah, room. I think I, there was a lot of commentary there about like you know the power that people put into symbols and how much mm. you can believe in those things despite having nothing, which I think goes hand in hand with Liv what you were saying about like the character not really having any control. I did notice that as well quite early on that he was like completely had no autonomy whatsoever and was being dragged along. He makes no choices for no. himself. And I think that's true of a lot of other characters in this as well. I think there's quite a few surrounding mm. characters who have well just let things happen to them. And Yeah. He's a he's a classic protagonist in the sense that he's just you don't really know where he stands in any of the situations. He's just sort of trying to work out what's going on and find his feet. I guess he's He's sort of like the reader in that sense. Mm, but, a blank um, slate I, to which you can project stuff onto. I got such a sense of relief when they got to Mr. One, 1000, is that what he's called? 
Yeah. Yeah. When they got to his house and he was like, yeah, it's all just a big joke. Sorry, guys. I was actually like, <laughs> honestly, thank God. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just couldn't deal with any more conspiracy. That's the thing, because it's such an escalating story in that sense, isn't it? They just... Every new plot point cranks it up a gear in like a suspension of disbelief. So, but because you lose your suspension of disbelief so quickly in this story, mm. it's really entertaining how it just keeps ratcheting up, like just like another slice of misery to pile on Clay. And that's just what every chapter is. It's just something horrible happening to him, preventing him from getting to where he wants to be. Yeah, I suppose he is a stand-in for the reader, uh, as Olivia said. Um, because mm. we, we are That's a really good reading. We are subject to all the shit that happens. Um, uh, yeah, and the only decision that he uh, that he makes in the entire uh, thing is at the beginning when he decides to go and look for his ex-wife. Yeah, because um, it's even debatable whether or not he goes and watches the film of his own volition. I think um, the film. Sorry, the story just starts with him walking into the theatre, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. But we don't like what is his motivation. Like we don't, <laughs> mm. you know what I mean? Because um, he even he he acts disgusted at being there. It's also one of the only times we get his inner monologue as well. Is right at the beginning. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because it doesn't really come into play after that. He, he we almost lose t- complete completely lose touch when he ends up at the sex cult. I think is like the last time. <laughs> That's a great um, sentence. And that's... There's a lot of male nudity in that cult. <laughs> yeah. At first, I thought that he didn't have uh, a penis, the um, the cult leader. So when he like gets up and runs towards him, I thought he was like one of those. You know, like, <laughs> I thought he had a vagina. I was like, that's fucking funny. You know. Weird. <laughs> um, but to bring it back to like the yeah the 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 kind of protagonist that he is, it's like it is a convention in writing and like uh it is taught in creative writing classes that um your protagonist has to have uh can't be acted upon they have to act in order to create conflict and keep your readers keep readers engaged and there were certain points where i was like i was reading it and i was thinking can't you just do something like just (laughs) take take ownership of this weird situation and he does a little bit by questioning but he doesn't ever do any. He doesn't ever just up and leave and no. say, "I'm getting away from these weirdos." But mm-hmm. um, then I thought, when you're in a dream, you rarely have agency unless you're lucid dreaming. That's true. In which case, like you're only in control of yourself. You're not in control of what happens to you. Um, all you can do is experience it. You know, uh, especially that's especially true for nightmares, because um, it's it, it is like the forces of your subconscious acting upon you. Um, so yeah, I think I don't think it's really possible to read this uh, story in any other way other than accepting the the dream aspect to it. Yeah, mm. it's strange that he there's, there's quite a few weird things to the reader that he dismisses, and then there's but there's occasionally some strange things that they address, and they address as being strange, like Tina as a character they address as being strange. Mm. And the yeah. dog as well, they address as being strange, but there's so much else that goes on that's equally as bizarre that they don't yeah. kind of point a finger out and say, isn't this strange? Um, no one ever acknowledges the existence of the film studio. What, towards the end? 
well ever like or the one across the street well everywhere that he goes to it and asks about it that's like oh yes sorry yeah yeah. i know what you mean that yeah like do you know what i mean and no one ever acknowledges oh yes yeah yeah. that the existence of of the film yeah interesting productions yeah Yeah. (laughs) does he get like transported to another world i guess the the dream world but it seems like he's almost in a normal place and then obviously he watches the film and then he goes into the, the toilets and it just everything starts to go weird. Yeah, it it, it it lost me there in terms of me like actually following the plot. I felt like I was vaguely following <laughs> like two it. Two pages. But when it got to that point, I was I was a bit lost. Obviously. When it gets to uh, Hannibal Buress reading your your fortune in a cubicle, yeah, <laughs> it, go, yeah it goes off the deep end so quickly. Mm. It's brilliant. For that. Yeah, there's some great graffiti in that uh, panel as yeah. well that that's brought that's brought into that's uh, reincorporated later. Well, I think every, every part of the graffiti actually had, plays some part. Like, there's a swastika um, that obviously plays into the Hitler aspect. I can't remember what the other ones are, but they're, like, quite good gags. Oh, um, I met... I always thought I was a man with uh, no dick until I met a woman with no vagina or something. <laughs> <laughs> just something, something weird that he obviously just yeah, thought was so funny. <laughs> there's... Yeah, man, it... The only aspect that still confuse I say the only, the main one that still confuses me is the meta story of what happened to the ex-wife. So in that she died in that interesting productions film and in real life. But then does, does Clay becomes part of the film, doesn't he, at the end? Yeah. When he's at the grave of his wife i believe so and the shirtless man rips him apart uh, and which is hilarious <laughs> jack nicholson is the terminator is how i he's just wearing I jeans <laughs> yeah he looks so uncomfortable he's so angry all the time yeah. <laughs> gives that man a swirly <laughs> yeah this i i i'm just still a bit puzzled as to within that film and that film is based on an actual song in 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 our world and uh the guy that is playing the song in the in the film looks exactly like clay but just like with a goatee well he goes to the rock doesn't he Mm -hmm. after um seeing it on a calendar which i thought was extreme um, That's only this dawned on me that the rock is called Calendra Rock, and he sees it on yeah, the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes there, and then he finds his wife's grave at the rock, and then he gets his limbs ripped off by the angry man. His name's like Geesh or something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Geet. Geet. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then he his limbs get buried, and he's like a nugget. Um, oh yeah, he doesn't actually die, does he? No. So his I limbs get. I think he dies. Yeah. He no, he doesn't. His limbs get like left behind and buried by those mysterious pe- people in in the masks. Mm. And Tina and then, like starts nursing him. Yeah, mm. but before before that, we like dolly out, and it's what's happening in the film, and then the film gets made, and then because mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the film gets made, and then it gets shown, and everyone loves it. That's a critically acclaimed snuff film. And then um, 
yeah, and then we go back to uh, Tina's house where Tina, the fish monster, is nursing um, our boy back to health whilst he's like writing or painting with a with his mouth because he's got no limbs. Um, so that's roughly what happens. I, I don't know what you can garner from that. <laughs> I, I I really honestly um I'm accepting the fact that I'm not I'm not gonna understand it fully, like maybe ever. Um the whole film aspect was kind of lost on me because I was so wrapped up with everything else and I forgot about it completely when he sets out. Yeah. Um and it's only until he sees the little girl who's writing his life, I guess, who's writing the stuff across the room. Who also smokes a pipe, which makes me think <laughs> she's not a little the girl. Drawing of the drawing the, of the pipe-smoking girl is brilliant. Yeah, I, get, I love the might design just, of her look. She might just be a little person, maybe, or like a, um, a homunculi. I think she's a little girl. But yeah. she's smoking a pipe. <laughs> I re- but Tina's a fish monster. Yeah. <laughs> like, where do you draw the line there? I really That's don't true. think there's any pressure on the, the reader to sort of come to conclusions about about the book because with each like as each scene develops there becomes a new elaborate dilemma that clayton not he's not called clayton is he he's called clay that he has to like explore yeah just clay and yeah by the end i was completely like it felt you could feel the escalation happening as towards the climax of the, the graphic novel but it didn't come anywhere closer to making any sort of sense I think that's how it's best enjoyed. Give me uh, like six of these beef jerkies. Hungry enough to chew the crotch out of a ragdoll. Hey! Hey! You! How many times I tell you? No chef, no service. Get the hell out of my store. What do you think this is? Club med? It's American, dude. Learn the rules. Learn the rules? You learn the rules! We Greeks invented democracy! You also invented homo. Fuck you! You wish! You're Shall we have a deep dive on Tina then? Talk about <laughs> her representation. No pun intended. In in the because uh, there may be some people listening who haven't read it, and she's definitely in, she's definitely worth talking about on her own. I think. Um, yeah. So Tina's like she she works in a diner that Clay uh, first goes to when he arrives in uh, the nameless town he's in um he uh she becomes infatuated with him but basically she looks i first thought she was a potato yeah because the first thing she asks is potato like do you want potato with your breakfast yeah and um i thought i thought that she, okay i was like oh okay this is just a weird character that's like a gag a one-off but actually yeah. she gets some serious character development and becomes like uh like the most human like refrain and like the only person who actually supports clay mm. throughout and um so she lives alone with her mum who has a resemblance to clay's ex-wife like a massive resemblance i'm not really sure what it's trying to say i guess um that might be to do with the fact that he is still massively infatuated with his ex-wife, but also might be the fact to do that she's a horrible monster. <laughs> um, did you see the design of Tina's room? I didn't notice. It was so pathetic. 
and like sad. <laughs> like, because it's but Tina kind of is. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it was it was great. Like it was some great like character development because she's got like a Kermit the Frog poster on at the back of a door that says <laughs> oh my god, and it, it says smile. And like her room is like really uh, like innocent. She's almost like a child, Aww. and she's obviously been like sheltered massively by her mum because she's a monster. <laughs> when she's working at the diner, and then some guys like, "Oh, I don't want to stay in there anyways. Every time I look at her, I want to throw up my meal." And then the lady at the shop's like, "Oh, don't listen to him, Tina." Oh, I'm literally, yeah. my I li- I think I audibly was like, "Oh." <laughs> she's such but a then the first thing she replies to that is like what's going on in the soap yeah yeah, yeah. that's like her distraction um what's that soap called in twin peaks Louis? invitation to love invitation to love i imagine i that's because that's that's where i got some of the markers for the twin peaks like references like the, di- yeah. the diner and the soap opera that are intermittently shown um and the heart the heart-wrenching bit where her mum is like, your father was so beautiful, what happened to what? you? Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. It's... Like, yeah. But... It's, uh, it's pretty tough. It's like, it does have these moments where you think, where did it get this kind of uh, emotional edge to mm. it, considering it puts no time into any of its characters, really? Yeah. It's not... It, I guess it kind of does, just very subtly, in a way that you don't really notice that you're taking in. I think it does. Yeah. It is quite... An... It tells it more through the world rather than through the characters. It's quite yeah. an achievement when you think about it, like how something can be so insanely weird, but it can still sort of connect to you on a deeper level. I think that's to do with the art style very heavily. I was, I was going to think... say, could we talk about that for a bit? Because it's so interesting. Yeah, we haven't really touched on that very much. Yeah, it's I like think all the core aspects to it. I think the crazy detail that goes into every panel of this really goes a long way to help fill in the blanks where the actual plot isn't doing anything because mm-hmm. <laughs> like the plot is constantly moving at a you know a bullet train's pace and I guess I guess uh I don't know about you but I spent a long time just staring at the panels just because I wanted to take in every single corner of the panel because there, there's always stuff to see in the backgrounds of these panels as well mm. and um like like you said jack the design of tina's room says a lot about tina mm. yeah i think that's why i'd benefit from a reread because i'm not used to graphic novels or like consuming that sort of art so i think you have a tendency to sort of gloss over bits if you're immersed in the, the dialogue or the storyline of a particular scene so i would like to reread it to take in more of the art in that way yeah one of the things that i really liked about the the art style was the fact that even those characters who were drawn relatively normal had something that was a little bit off about them that made them creepy mm. even yeah. like those obviously the ones who were completely ridiculous like we've talked about tina and stuff like that before but um just some of the regular side characters, like the shopkeeper he met, I found really freaky. Just in his 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 actions <laughs> as well as the way that he was drawn, was so yeah unnerving and, and strange. And I think yeah. it, it helps a lot from like the black and white ink style as well. I think that makes the atmosphere mm-hmm. of quite a lot of this quite dire and helps with quite a lot of the dark humor that's woven into here. Yeah, there's that that old radio host as well. Um, whose obituary isn't transcribed, so you have to like read it in the really awfully written um, font 
that's in the graphic novel in order to get more information out of him. Um, but he looks terrifying with his enormous forehead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like the <laughs> yeah. opening of one of the chapters, isn't he? There's like a huge half page. Of yeah, him. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's got the, oh, I don't know if, yeah, I think it's where he's holding his business card and he says, have a nice day, asshole. <laughs> um, My favourite one-off character in that sense is when Clay is staying at that seedy motel in this room where anyone can just walk in whenever they want mm. and just stay the night in that room as well. And it's a yeah. really massive room. And at the very end of the room, every time he looks up at the end of his bed, way in the corner, you can see this man in the window. <laughs> yeah, the oh my God, I forgot. Like, <laughs> like a little goblin fella staring over the window. <laughs> and he never... And he got a big laugh out of me every time. And it never goes into who that person is. And he never breaks eye contact there. either. It's like... <laughs> it's always staring at Yeah, me. it's like that whole thing about like, if you every time you make eye contact with a stranger like it's instinctive to look away and the people you need to be worried about are the people who don't break eye contact <laughs> <laughs> yeah um what one thing that i've just remembered is um there's like a motif going on with uh it, it's first really brought out in the sex cult bit which we might want to touch a bit more because we haven't really talked about that much but um there's a the uh beautiful son she says um i i can't remember what she says but she says something like um you taught me that everyone loves and hates each other at the same time mm. and that like paradoxical uh sort of uh aphorism kind of su- surmises the entire graphic novel for me because i mean the title is uh of was it a velvet hand um what's it called like a velvet glove cast yeah, an iron. Yeah, right. Like a velvet glove cast an iron. So you've got like the soft with the with the hard, like the welcoming with the unwelcoming, and that's kind of what every what everyone is like. Mm. Every, or every characters have elements of that. You know, it's like yeah, everything definitely. is. Every everyone's like nice, and then they flip, and then they're mental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then do you know he, what I mean? He and, sort of gives an opportunity for every character that seems evil or fucked up to show some redemptive side and to not cast judgment upon these horrible characters like the mum of tina who is like clearly a bit of a sexual predator and a bit of a dickhead to tina all the time is also really sensitive and obviously cares about tina but is repulsed Mm. by her and isn't afraid to express that to like whoever sees her so I think all those characters sort of have that, that dual aspect to them. It's really good getting to discuss these characters because I didn't realise just how three-dimensional they are mm. until now we're talking about them all. Yeah. And actually, Daniel Close has done such a good job in fleshing these people out. I think it's these... it's definitely made me think a lot about how I'll, I'll form my own characters in writing in the future. Like, it's so important yeah. to not make characters just have this one, one side to them. They need to be multifaceted. Yeah.
time reading it, one of the main things that struck me was the sheer confidence of it. Mm. I I looked. I was looking at Daniel Clay's sort of uh, his back catalogue, and this one, this is like the first big thing he did was this. I think this was 1993, right. and I just think I I could never write anything like this. <laughs> just writing this kind of world and just seeing it all in your head. And being to not only write it, but draw it for a reader or a consumer uh, is is just so impressive to me. It was one of the things that I've always found one of my uh, I've always found so uh, I've always been in, in awe of about graphic novels is just this ability to to really paint these worlds in such a different way. Uh, I guess what is one of the bonuses, like you said, Liv, that these characters can seem so fleshed out and three-dimensional because uh, you see them in their environments, whereas if you're writing a short story or a novel, you don't really get the benefit of visual stimuli. You just go with what you can do with words. Yeah. And I think it's a testament to how good this is that it tells so much through its images. It really uses its medium to tell its story. Yeah. Like you'd want from any piece of art, I suppose. I'd love to see the notes that went, like, that formed the sort of drafts and stuff for this, like all, yeah. the, all the pre-production for it. I'd love yeah, to usually that. when you buy a collected, uh, collected works like this, you get uh, the sketches and the drafts in the back once you've finished it. Uh, but unfortunately on this one, it's just the last page and then, yeah, that's it. You, d- you don't get anything else really, which mm. is a shame. Because like you say, I'd love to, often my favourite bits, uh, like in a lot of the Batman graphic novels I've got, you get to see a lot of the, how it started yeah. in its early development Watchmen and it's really too. really interesting seeing how how like how it all came together mm. on a on a uh, side note when i when i was uh given watchman uh for my birthday a while back um that was uh at the back the very back page there's a little note from um neil gaiman to to alan moore and oh is i might be getting that wrong because I, I can't remember but it's 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 something like that and um it looked so authentic that I thought I had a really rare copy. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, this is awesome! Best and then ever. I did some research and... You rang up the auction house. <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah, I uh, I was basically, basically disappointed. One of the things I want to discuss, uh, which we touched on earlier in this discussion, is that, Jack, you said you've seen the Ghost World film. Yes. And I, I don't know about you, but whenever I read things these days, I try to picture, if I had to turn it into a film or a TV show, how I'd go about doing it. I've always been quite obsessed with that. I remember I went through a phase when I was like early teens, where I'd only read books of films, and then I'd watch the film afterwards to see how well it translated. And so I remember like what reading The Beach, then watching it. That's not one of the good adaptations. But then something like <laughs> Life of Pi, I think the film is as good as the novel, if not better. Yeah. So, I was thinking, this is nearly unfilmable. This. I don't know how you could... Only David Lynch really could do ...really do this. <laughs> Maybe Lynch. Uh, Terry Gilliam, I think. I think Terry Gilliam could probably have a good stab at it. I, I, it got me thinking a lot of Fear and Loathing, like the acid scenes in that, when he's just seeing lizards at the bar and stuff. But, that... Uh, one night this week... I was scrolling through BFI player, wondering 
well, I should watch that evening. And I saw Ghost World. I was like, oh, that's a, the other Daniel Cloth comic. That's his most famous one. And I've been meaning to watch this film for a while. I'll watch that in preparation for this discussion. And I found that such a fascinating film. I didn't even think it was that good, the film. But I found it so fascinating to see how somebody had interpreted that to put it in a film. Because uh, Daniel Close worked on the film. He co-wrote the screenplay for it. So I thought it's really interesting that this is how he wanted to do it. And I'd say the first half of that film is a really good, accurate depiction of what that graphic novel is like. But then the second half is a studio saying nothing's happening. She has to want to sleep with Steve Buscemi's character. Is that not in the graphic novel? No, he's like a he he's he's like a one-off character. Really? Yeah. They play that prank on him in the beginning, but that's all you ever see from him. That's mental because he's like the, yeah. the linchpin of the entire film. Like yeah, that, that, it's bizarre. That love story is completely. <laughs> ah, and that's, and it's one of the best. Well, it is one of the cool things in the film is that I think for about the first half of that film, they justify making him a bigger character because it's played by Steve Buscemi, who's good. He's yeah. always good, and. Thora Birch's chemistry with him is really good. But then I never... It, you could just so clearly see like a hard line down the middle of that film where it's like, no, they, the characters in this can't be irreverent. They can't not want to do anything. They have to like... She has to dream of going to university. Like She has to dream of going to art school and she has to want to like have sex with men and stuff it's like that is so not what the comic was about that's it's, it's really bizarre that's hilarious because like that it ghost world seems like a schmaltzy coming of age film with a, with, mm-hmm. an, with an art house aesthetic um like that's so when the, when the graphic novel has been like harped on about so much i've been like a bit dismissive which i guess is a really like a, not, well, not not a good attitude to have but um, mm-hmm. like not because I not because I didn't enjoy the film because I did enjoy the film when I saw it but um, I didn't think it was like worth the hype you know so they also Scarlett Johansson's character is a co-main character mm. with Thora Birch in the graphic novel it's about those two she does get sidelined in the but film. in the film she just gets dropped about halfway through it and she's just like I want to buy an apartment which is like they don't care about that stuff in Ghost World. Mm. They just it's a bit like it's a bit like this, but just a way more accessible version of this, the gra- uh, the graphic novel of that, in that it's a lot more set in the real world, but it's just uh, like the series of vignettes of what these girls get up to that summer mm. and what stupid crap they want to do. I'm definitely gonna have to read it, I think. Uh, it, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I really enjoyed um, really enjoyed this one so But it got me thinking about like how could you possibly turn this into mm. Not that I think you have to, but it's an exercise I always like doing in my brain. How how could you film it? Mm. Yeah, as we've said, I think it would just be, uh, I think Under the Silver Lake has come as close as you really can. Mm. On a on a slightly different topic, going back to what we were talking about the um the sex cult that he comes across quite early on in the film. I was getting, oh sorry, graphic novel, my bad. So we were just <laughs> talking about that film. Um, one more mistake, Jamie. You're out. You're on thin ice, Jamie. <laughs> um, I was getting in a combination of that and also when we were saying about the characters having like a lack of autonomy. It reminded me of loads of like the Manson cult 
and how quite a lot of that was about him yeah. making other people doing his bidding and manipulating their um, sense of free will. And I, I wasn't sure sort of when we first started the the graphic novel how long like that section was going to go on for, and I thought like the whole thing was kind of going to be an analogy for that, but obviously it gets completely thrown off. But I think yeah, that there were a few things I... like that that are clearly rooted in some kind of like um, real events or commenting on some kind of um, movement, like you know we were saying with Bill Clinton being in it, and there being a few references to real life songs, you know, as dreamlike and as strange and abstract as it is at times there's also points clearly where it's trying to touch on something that we're all familiar with it's funny you say that jamie because i don't know if anyone noticed that i think when he first gets involved in the cult they're singing that song that is also used in once upon a time in hollywood when you first see the manson Ah. family that all is one and it's one one maybe yeah. yeah, they're definitely mm-hmm. leading you down that path. Yeah. Is it by the Manson family band? I actually meant to look up where that song comes from, whether it's like a folk song or a recorded. So I don't know what it was. Yeah, because I know they, I know they released an album. Yeah, um, I'd rather blindly speculate and uh, call it the truth. <laughs> yes, yes, so would I. Um, but actually, interesting that you come back to the sex court. Jamie, because I know we talked about um, him not having agency. Please come back to the sex cult, Jamie. <laughs> that is another time, one of the few times where he shows agency, which is oh, yeah. where they're about to commit commit the murder, and he's, he goes into the van, and then uh, Beautiful Son is like, what are you doing? And then she berates him, and then she like leaves and goes back mm. into the house. And at that point, I was like, get away <laughs> from this yeah. place. <laughs> Jesus but Christ. So, I love the look of that weird van thing that he steals as well. Yeah. It's really funnily shaped. <laughs> it's like the car from the Myst- uh, from Mystery Men. Yeah. You remember that film? I don't really remember that film. No. But even at that stage, it's not like he's proactively fighting his way out. She kind of just leaves it and, and he no, sees his opportunity and takes it. There's no point where he actually... Like yeah, puts up any kind of fight or um, pushes against the cult, just gets lucky, kind of. He doesn't was, resist, does he? That was another sense of relief in the in the book where he manages to get away from the cult. I was just like, oh my god, I really hope that's like the end of it, and he just has nothing more to do with that. That's the thing; you feel so at mercy to the surroundings as a reader, and when something works out the way you wanted it, you're just like, breathe out and yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 like it's it's one of the uh, most effective, um, like almost horror esque uh, things to to do is is like to portray like not something necessarily supernatural or anything like that. It's just like just portraying someone's life not being in their own control. I just find it yeah. very very anxiety inducing and for a lot of the graphic yeah. novel, that's what I was getting. And like, that was how, that's how I would describe my experience of reading it. It's just like pure anxiety inducing because it's just horrible. Like not being in control and not understanding anything that's going on and not having mm. any single way out and just being surrounded by all these horrible people who want to use you to their own mm. ends. And then like, the yeah. end, that not have absolutely no regard for who you are as an individual like it's terrifying it is absolutely yeah terrifying. and that um reliance almost comes thinking about it now comes full circle by the end of it when clay ends up 
completely incapacitated and at the will of others. That's why um, Tina and the dog Laura are, you know, we're drawn to them most as readers because they're also like these such innocent characters. Like obviously Laura is just this completely stupid dog that has just been brought into this weird world by some scientist dude. And Tina is just this like sort of socially exiled character who looks like a freak from the outside, but is actually quite nice and somewhat normal. Because they they sort of uh, are the parallels in the in this like bizarre world of weirdos. Before we move on to everyone's favourite part, the scoring system, which no one has any issues with whatsoever. Um, uh, if you could be any character from like a Velvet Glove Curse and Iron, who would you want to be? That's a great question, Jamie. Great question, and I'm going to answer. Is um is is the name of the dog Laura? Yeah, I'd like to be Laura. Didn't she end up dead? <laughs> <laughs> and shaved. In, in this world, that's a preferable fate, I think, to yeah. actually living in it. Well, it's it's not necessarily the character that I'd like to be, but the, the character that I like the, the most. If you can even call it a character. like <laughs> I, just like, I, I just love the image of it. Uh, Liv, who would you like to be? Um, Is it Mr. 1000? Sorry, that is what he's called, isn't it? I keep forgetting his name. The guy who manages to breed dogs with no orifices. Yeah, he's just like sort of living in the outside with his weird wife and just chilling. And every now and then he gets a visit from like some conspiracist. And then he's like, oh, it was all a big joke. And it's just pretty chill existence there. So yeah, I guess him or his wife. Sort of on the outside looking in. Jack, who'd you like to be? Uh, Mr. Jones, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> That panel of Mr. Jones striding enormously through the desert is so good. I love this. The guy who claims that he saw him one, but it's just like a giant I thought, moving over the desert. I thought his design was the funniest thing in the world. And like how he has two forms. He has this like Mr. Man, uh, Dr. Manhattan form where he's like uh, like a Promethean, like the, the apex of humanity. And then he just like looks like uh, the Monopoly man like mid mid <laughs> mid abortion <laughs> uh, and if it were down to me i'd like to be the guy that owns the motel who's always in the sailor's cap <laughs> or the captain yeah. <laughs> yeah, to <the> <laughs> bring anything for the captain did you, got you? Anything for me. <laughs> filthy land lover the little girl smoking a pipe wouldn't be a bad she's a also either. Good. yeah yeah, or Dr. Wild, actually. Uh, should we Ooh. do some scores? Yeah. Go on, then. Oh, I really can't give it a score. I'll give it... I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Uh, I, I probably upped it from my last read as well, just because this time I, I really appreciate the artwork a lot more this time, mm. just because I was a little less preoccupied with having to get scripts of the plot, yeah. because there is none. The artwork's and, great. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It really is. He's a, he's a fantastic artist. Yeah, the artwork's amazing. Um... I'd give it a, I'll give it an, an, an eight because um, I'd like to have the opportunity to sit with it a bit more and um, like try and figure it out a bit more before I go any higher, even though it, it is already really high because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, uh, eight, eight out of 10, I suppose, is probably the most appropriate score I can give it. I would probably... I really don't want to give it a score because I don't feel like it's something that can be fit into a... It's just so unconventional in every sense. I feel like giving it a score sort of 
defeats what it's trying to do. But um, we have our first, our, all that was quite useless veto <laughs> on the score right there. Yeah, I'm gonna veto it. I don't want to give it a score. I liked it. Fair I enjoyed play. it, and I feel like it's got a lot going on, and I want to read it again and see what else I can draw from it. Um, I think I respect it quite a lot and i like I, well, I love the art style and i like a lot of the dark humor in it but i do think the lack of the plot and the way that it's quite schizophrenic at times makes it particularly on your first read very confusing um and as it as it piles on especially towards the end it gets probably the worst for that i was so confused during the last few pages yeah but i think it's something that it's going to benefit more from rereads and sitting with and thinking about so i think for for that reason on First impressions, I'll go a little bit lower and, and say six. Ooh. Cancelled. That is a low boy. Just a little bit, though. I like to it's, it. It's positive. Oh, well, yeah. I, I completely agree with everything you did just say. Yeah, I feel like while I was reading it, I was actually not enjoying it. And I was like, well, I've, I've literally got nothing to say about this. This is not good. And then afterwards, I was like, I can totally see what he was trying to do. It all makes sense. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> so I'll I'll preface this by saying we've kind of it's it's been a running joke and we've made allusions to to um, looking at a Doctor Who episode before. <laughs> and, <laughs> whilst it hasn't quite come to that I picked, something, I picked something in the parameters so this is a one-off BBC is it the Sarah Jane Adventures? <laughs> it's not, no is it Doctor Who Confidential? it's actually <laughs> I've actually picked an episode of Class <laughs> I've not picked an episode of Class. It's <laughs> okay. another um, Doctor Who knockoff. I've actually picked a one-off uh, biographic that they aired in 2013 called An Adventure in Space and Time. Mm. Okay. okay. Sounds it's interesting. About, it's about the start of the show, essentially. So it revolves around... It's play, got David Bradley in it, who plays the first Doctor, William Hartnell. Um, and it also focuses on quite a lot of... Um, producers and BBC execs, namely Verity Lambert and Sidney Newman. Um, and it's yeah, mainly about how the show started and the first cycle. So it pretty much goes from the beginning of the show to the end of William Hartnell's run as the first Doctor. Sick. Oh, that sounds Boy. very interesting. Oh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, it, so it aired in 2013 as part of the 50th anniversary stuff. So I think it was a few days. I remember watching it on TV a few days before the actual 50th episode. But I think it's quite overlooked. So I'd be interested to see what you guys think about it. Cool. 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 podcast that one was on daniel clothes like a velvet glove cast and iron so thanks for joining us for that one hope you enjoyed it and i hope you read it it's quite wonderful definitely gets the cogs going in your head jamie has picked 
An Adventure in Space and Time, the 2013 TV movie about the inception of Doctor Who. And there will be a link in the description of this podcast as to where you can find that to view before the next one. Thanks again to Jack, Jamie and Liv and you, listener, for sticking with it. Toodle pip. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.